The first two years of running Rise of Seven, I think I was very ego-driven. Um, I can only admit that now. I wouldn't have admitted it then, um, but I was very much about, um, I thought I was the best at what I could do. I, you know, saw the success of the way I ran campaigns, the, the way I ran the business, and I clearly I'm good at what I do, it works. Well, then when you meet people that are better than you, sometimes that can be a threat or you absolutely jump onto it and go, how can I work with this person? This is the Leeds Business Podcast, and I'm your host, Phil Fraser. I'm a business sounding board. Think somewhere between a business coach and a business mentor. If you're a business owner feeling the pain and confusion of being lonely at the top, give me a call. I can help remove the stress and lack of clarity that you're feeling that comes with running your own business. In this week's episode, we speak to Carrie Rose, founder and CEO of Search First Digital Agency, Rise at Seven. Hear how Carrie went from launch to 7.2 million turnover in just four years, winning 80 awards in the first two years on the way. How she turned down Launch Sugar, the importance of brand and company culture, why sticking to processes and systems works, the issues she encountered managing exponential growth and how she copes with managing staff older than herself. There's also a great how-to in building your own personal brand. To make sure you never miss out on every episode of the Leeds Business Podcast, make sure you sign up for notifications at www.leadsbusinesspodcast.com. Everyone that signs up gets a free gift to help their business. So, let's get into what is a really fast-moving and amazing interview. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to have on as a guest the founder and CEO of the Search First Creative Agency, Rise at Seven, Carrie Rose. Hi, Carrie. Hello, Phil. Finally, we did it. <laughs> yes, it, this, this, has taken, this has taken a long time to put together. Now, just I'm going to hold my hand up here. This is the Leeds Business Podcast, and we only have Leeds business owners on here. But Carrie went to university in Leeds, worked for two Leeds digital agencies so it's my podcast it's my rules so hey we're having carry on <laughs> I, I did actually live in leeds for six years so count semi count it there you go there you go so she qualifies she qualifies <laughs> so carrie just to introduce everybody to who and what rise at seven is and the fact that you've done just incredible figures in what four and a half years just give us a top line view of the numbers you have done so, um, I'm Carrie. I have worked in the search industry most of my career, but essentially what I did is launch my own marketing agency, tying creative marketing and search marketing together. Um, I launched it in June, 2019, and we scaled it essentially from zero to 7.2 million in four years, and that's in revenue. Um, so I think year one, we did 1.5, then 3.8, then 5.5, then 7.2, something like that off the top of my head. Um, so we've scaled rapidly over the space of four years. And bearing in mind that was during a pandemic as well. So we, it's been super fast growth, lots of learnings. Um, but yeah, I think we're, we're on the list of one of the fastest growing agencies in the UK. And we're now also in the US. So we've just launched in the US and in our first year in the US, we've done 1.5 million just in the US alone. So, so far so good. Absolutely sensational. I mean, when you set up in June, 2019, were those sort of figures in the business plan? This must be way above what you, what you thought would happen. Phil, 
I think we forecasted to do 300,000 in our first year. And I remember <laughs> saying to the team, if we hit, honestly, I remember saying to the team, if we hit a million, I'll take you all on holiday. Cause I never thought it'd happen. Cause I remember seeing the numbers and we was like 200,000 and, and then 300,000 and then 400,000. I was like, wait, we could do a mil this year. And then when we did 1.5, yeah, I ended up taking everybody on holiday. The funny story is a little bit of a funny story behind that. I promised that to about seven staff at the time. So we only had a small team when we was growing um, and essentially the pandemic hit. So I couldn't take them away. And every single week there was like, are we still going away? We're we still going away. And I was like, yeah, yeah, as soon as the world opens. Well, by the time the world opened, we had 80 staff. So I had to take all 80 <laughs> to my <Ibiza. laughs> I was like, do, do I just take the seven that I promised or I can't, I can't say no. So yeah, we took everybody away and it was a success of not just year one, but the full four years. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. Let's go, let's go right back to start. Talk us through launching your own business after having worked in, what was it? A couple of, couple of, couple of search agencies in Leeds, wasn't it? How, just talk us through the process of how you went about launching your own business. Yeah, of course. So I, Started my first career in Sticky Eyes. If anybody on this um, podcast is listening, Sticky Eyes, very similar agency. I then went into Branded3. Branded3 was known as one of the best search agencies in Europe. They sold on in the end. But essentially, I had this idea to essentially create an agency which combined creative advertising in with SEO because that was never done before. And I think what I actually did, if I reflect, is I created a business which swam in the the blue ocean. So for anybody that doesn't understand what I'm talking about, the, in, in business, there's the red ocean and the blue ocean. The red ocean is essentially where everyone is swimming. It's full of blood. It's very competitive. Everybody's biting each other. And the dream is to swim in the blue ocean where nobody else is swimming, where you don't have competitors. And the way to do that is to take what those people in the red ocean are doing really well, but then apply it to something that makes you special. So it's essentially taking two things and combining them to basically create a market where nobody else is in a completely blue ocean market. And that's what I did with Rise. So I essentially took the aspects of creative advertising and I applied that to SEO. Nobody had done that in the space before. For, meaning I created a search first creative agency and I was in a blue ocean because nobody else did this. So I essentially, there's a little bit of a back history behind this, but I applied for the apprentice TV show, BBC, um, and I put a business plan together and I essentially made it to the final 30. I did my intro to Cam of, you know, um, hi, my name's Carrie. I had this business idea, etc. And Lord Sugar essentially offered me private investment and to go and start somewhere else um, rather than going on the TV show. But he wanted 50% of the business, which I wasn't willing to give away. So I actually decided um, somebody else offered me private investment instead. And I actually ended up taking that. So I, what I did is there was a guy in Branded3 that I worked with for about seven years. And he was one of the directors. And he, me and him had this amazing relationship when it comes to sales and growth. So I was this young 22-year-old kind of creative, like, um, person that was amazing, like amazing at pitches, but he was this like commercial head. And what we did is me and him went to a lot of pitches together and every pitch we went to, we won. So we had this amazing synergy. So essentially I asked him, do you want to come with me and start this business? And um, we had a small bit of investment, not massive at all, um, but a small bit of investment, which probably covered me for about four months in terms of giving me confidence to kind of not look at the bank account and just look ahead. 
Um, and he said, yeah. So we launched in June, 2019. Um, and we actually had one client from day one. And that was a, a business that I had worked with for four years. And that was the only client I had. Um, so yeah, so we had to start from fresh. Wow. Fantastic. So Lord Sugar actually said, don't go through the apprentice process. Just I'll just invest now. Exactly. Um, wow. It was interesting because he actually said to me, you watch the show, right? And I was like, yeah. And he said, it's an entertainment show. I was like, okay, I understand that. But also there's a business opportunity at the end. And he was very clear that is obviously the opportunity, but he basically, um, his team, so his financial advisor was sat there and he basically said, what we're trying to say is you've got a really good business plan here. You should go get investment privately kind of thing. Um, right. So why don't you take this investment instead? So essentially um, I got offered a much better offer um, separately, which wasn't 50% of the business. Um, yeah, and I decided to take that up. Did you have to go out and, and sort of do angel investment pitches for that? Or was that just somebody you knew? Somebody I knew. This person yeah. had worked with me or seen my work and, you know, seen how good I was and both Stephen as well for, for about four or five years. And essentially they said, you know, if, if you ever, um, you know, decide to do something, launch a business, whatever, I would invest in you. So I think that those natural relationships was key there. Um, this is somebody that isn't an investor. They hadn't invested. They wanted to be able to do that. Um, but they, what they did is spotted something special and knew that, you know, I had that grit in me to be able to build something. So I didn't go for the angel investment. Um, but I think it, it created a really good synergy because he had zero expectations from me other than backing me, you know, complete trust and belief, um, which is great. Right. Okay. Okay. So, You've set up this business, you've got a little bit of backing, you've got one client. What happened? Why did it go so <laughs> amazingly well? Honestly, I think it was a mixture of all sorts of different things. We were very brave and bold from day one. Um, for an example, two days, two days after we launched the business, there was a conference in our space and we actually hijacked that conference and essentially got on stage and put a big Rise at Seven logo and announced that myself and Stephen came out was launching this business. We did that kind of secretly. We weren't allowed to do that. We was actually advertising a different business whilst there, but we decided to advertise our own and kind of, you know, there was 4,000 people in the audience that was about to see this. And off the back of that, we had like 4,000 media impressions. We got like 200 odd uh, people following us on, on, you know, Twitter and things, which doesn't sound a lot, but for a startup with, you know, just two of us trying to figure it out. And I guess one of the things I did, um, I spotted an opportunity. So there was a conference in our space, a separate one, who invited me to go speak. I was this like kind of new kid on the block. And a lot of people was like, what has she got to say kind of for herself? Like, how does she do, you know, her marketing strategies, et cetera. And I think that gave me an opportunity rather than just to go and, you know, teach everybody about, you know, digital PR and SEO and, you know, how we apply creative advertising to SEO. There was an opportunity to really show this is how we do things. This is how, you know, the 10 years that I've worked in this industry, I've got a process and I, I've got a repeatable process of how to run a campaign from start to end. And I basically stood on stage and I gave that process away from start to end, literally every single detail of it. And yes, that was a risk because I had competitors in the audience writing everything down. 
But the best part of it was in the audience was some big brands. I knew there was going to be big brands in that audience. And one in particular was the head of SEO at Misguided. And he spotted my talk, was like, you clearly know what you're talking about. I'm doing a pitch process at the minute. We've already chosen agency for, for global UK and US, but you seem a bit of a wild card. We'd love to invite you in on a Monday and pitch basically for this retainer. That wild card statement changed everything for me. And that what I mean by that is being the wild card, sometimes see people see as a threat, but I saw that so much as a strength. So I essentially went into Misguided um, and we pitched for that work. Um, and something I did, which you'll like, Phil, is, um, I ended up taking some people that I used to work with um, as, as members of staff, fake members of staff. So they didn't work <laughs> for me. But I basically was like, we need to look bigger. If we're going to Misguided, we need to look two times bigger than we are. So I took fake members of staff to this pitch for Misguided. But I was very honest. And I said, these people in the room don't work for me but they're the best that I've ever worked with. If we win this account, I'm going to hire them tomorrow. And they loved it. I do think what I'm very good at is applying, like I took that risk, but what I know, misguided, a digital first brand, they're risk takers, they're scalers, they're you know, young workforce. I knew they would probably identify with me. I would identify with them. So I think from a brand point of view, what I try to do from day, day one is apply myself to my customers you know, what do they look like as humans and what sort of skill sets and risks will they take? And then, you know, apply myself. So, you know, I wouldn't go and pitch that to, you know, HSBC Bank because they'd throw me out the room. But I took a risk that day and applied, well, you know, I'm a misguided, misguided girl. I think I can run your marketing and here's some of the things I'm going to do to make sure I do it. And yeah, we won the account. Wow. And from that day, that, that story became quite famous. We actually got featured in Prolific North, you know, this young agency with a couple of staff, won this misguided account. And from then, we got phone calls from Pretty Little Thing, Boohoo Group, Game, Xbox, PlayStation. Honestly, every Monday we won an account. It was crazy, Phil. Wow. Like, I can't even explain like how crazy it was so fast. So we scaled from then. How do you go about managing, particularly in the early days, how do you go about managing that in incredibly quick growth, particularly in, in, in staff and being able to just deliver the work? So process. I think I'm not a process girl, Phil. I'm not. I'm such a, um, you know, chaotic mindset. I'll try new things every single day. But I do think one of the things I did really well is I spent like three days straight writing down how everything process from start to end of how we run a PR campaign, how we run a social campaign, how to do an SEO, uh, SEO audit, literally like a step-by-step -step guide. So much that when we hired a member of staff, so we also hired a member of staff every Monday and we passed over this book and said, follow that. Very much like, um, have you ever seen Wolf of Wall Street? Um, there's that yep. scene where he writes a script. It, like, he's like, follow the script, don't go out the lines. That's pretty much what I did. I basically said, do that, don't go out the lines, just follow the rules and you'll be absolutely fine. And I was able to scale, you know, junior people straight out of university to, you know, within a year running massive global campaigns for play, you know, for brands like PlayStation and Xbox because they was able to follow this process. Um, so yeah, so I do think process is the thing that was underrated, but I wrote everything down um, and kind of made it a bit of like a, secret handbook, I guess. Right, right, okay. And you were saying that that sort of secret handbook was was just based on trial and error that you and, and, and Stephen had gone through over the, the previous 10 or so years? One thing I think we both did very well, um, I think 
we was planning for running a business one day without knowing it because once we left branded three it's like we had resources and it weren't necessarily planned it was just we had resources things that we've done for the last seven to eight years of like this is how to pitch a really good pitch this is how to you know do a campaign that you know delivers x you know times results and i basically had documents after documents that i then formed into process so i do think um if anybody's kind of listening to this the things you're working on today figure out well how did i do that write it down because that will be so valuable one day and i think that's what i did really well throughout my career is like okay when i ran a really successful pinterest campaign i was i kind of reverse engineered it what i did then and then i wrote down how i did it and then that become a process for my future so i do think that's what i we did really well is applied my learnings from seven years in documents and then brought it to my new business right right okay and i know in that the sort of first year 18 months it was it was mad and i i, I know you did a video about people being desperate to come and work with you and sending you lots of creative cvs and stuff like that just just share a few of those with our listeners because some of them were absolutely brilliant and it and it proves how strong the rides at seven brand had become really really quickly i guess when you're scaling so fast and you need to hire staff um, our, you know, the last thing we wanted to do was spend mad money on recruitment. And I know that's a massive issue still to this day with recruiting really good talent. So the only way to get people to work, want to work for you is to actually just create a big brand that, you know, is, is kind of like enticing in that way. So essentially what we did is we opened, um, like a, our careers page of rather than send your CV, just send anything. You don't, we didn't expect like any, what people actually did, but what we wanted is just, sh you know, show us some work you've done over the last 10 years or tell us three, three reasons why you. But what we actually ended up getting sent was just amazing. We woke up one day, like we had a pair of, no, I got sent a sneaker and it was a sneaker that was designed in Rise at Seven branding. And it was just one shoe, the left shoe. And basically they said, if you want the right shoe or a Rise of Seven branded sneaker, um, would, you know, you've got to invite me to an interview. But it just shows the creativity of capturing my attention. And ultimately that's what we do as marketers, we capture attention. So straight away that showed me they know how to capture their attention. So people was really creative with that. One person, funny enough, kind of went overboard, but it was actually really fun. They designed and built this game. It was a little bit like Mario Kart, where this little character jumped over hurdles and essentially it was like a rise at seven building that they designed and there was this character that jumped over these hurdles you know got past the baddies all that sort of thing and ended up at this door for an interview and it was carrie rose opening the door it was just hilarious people were very creative we had all sorts from like people designed up vogue magazines with like them as a story in it um you know all you know all sorts of stuff um i think we got sent um like all sorts of balloons and um, christmas tree baubles like all sorts but i think it was all about capturing attention showing different skill sets being creative um and that's you know most of our staff came from that um we, we i didn't care about i haven't read one cv in my last four years phil um so cvs didn't really matter to me right okay then that I, I i thought that was fascinating that was fascinating okay so you've started picking up these accounts one afternoon after another yeah that's a great success trajectory where what were the what were the glitches what i mean it's always it's never you know e easy easy going particularly in the early years where where were they where were the where were the first pain points that you experienced couple of things um 
Funny enough, when pe when brands and businesses grow really fast, usually what impacts is the product. The product gets weaker, not as good quality. That didn't happen for us. We ended up winning like, you know, 80 awards in our first two years of, you know, launching the business. Our product always remained strong. And that was very like me protecting that at all costs. The thing that really struggled was our culture. I think it got so desperate that we needed different types of skill sets, different types of people that I think we didn't stick to our values. When we hire staff, we hire them on specific values. So we have four values in our business, sharp as attack, enthusiastic as hell, expert in their field and proud to be us. And we've basically broken down what those values are in terms of behaviors. And what we look for is those behaviors in these interviews. If we don't see them, they don't get a job. So essentially, I do think there was an element of, because we were growing so fast, we hired everyone and anyone. We kind of said, you know, yes to so many people. And, you know, I've made massive mistakes. I've hired very senior people that I shouldn't have hired. I've, you know, gave too many junior people too many jobs. And I think a, a, t a time of desperation, of fast growth and all that sort of thing, I didn't protect the culture. Um, and there was elements of really struggling to protect that, to scale that. So there was an element where we really struggled to retain staff um, at a certain period, because often what happened was, you know how I described, you know, I gave my process away to these staff and they was following the script and it was, you know, working really well, delivering really good results. What actually happened was, I found anyway that these people were following a process, but they struggled to think for themselves. They didn't actually know, well, why am I doing it this way? Obviously I spent 10 years figuring that out. I, it took me years to figure out why that process is the right process. Um, so often I had, um, I struggled with progressing people because often they just followed my rules and followed my, you know, script book. Um, but then didn't actually, you know, think for themselves of, well, what is it I need to do to get past this, you know, problem or hurdle? So we had a really bad cultural um, impact on the business through fast growth, but we also struggled with progression of staff. We had a lot of people that wanted to progress, but unfortunately just did not have the years of experience and the, you know, the problem solving tactics and things like that to get there. Um, so I think people side of things was the hardest, definitely through fast growth. Right, right. Okay, okay. And I mean, this is always a difficult one for, for fast growing companies is how how do you protect that culture when you need, in effect, bums on seats to get the work out? How would you, having having had that, particularly in the early days, having had that issue, how would you, how would you do it differently I would, I'd go back. I think often a lot of business don't invest in, you know, what makes you, you as a business, like what is good behaviors in your company? And when I say good behaviors is like skill sets. So like asking killer questions or moving fast when there's a problem and, you know, finishing a, a, a task through to the end, those sort of behaviors is what we look for. And I think we just lost touch in them. And I think now I hold them really tight to us. So like, um, we look for them in interviews, but also in our, you know, monthly reviews with our staff, we constantly reward people on them. So if you're showing that you are you know an expert in your field or sharp as attack we reward people so i think i do think going back to the values and sticking to them and making sure they're in everything that everybody does is the thing that keeps culture and it's there that's the things that lives and breathes you know in our day-to-day -day. um so i do think you know investing in what who you are as a business and what those values are i remember years ago businesses used to have values written on the wall and they used to bang on about them every year in yearly reviews and I remember thinking it was just a load of fluff. 
but now I see the benefit of them. Now I see what unites us. Like I've, you know, I have said goodbye to certain people in the business that unfortunately haven't, you know, ticked our values. And now I have the strongest team I think I've ever had. And I think it's because I went back to basics. What is it I said I wanted? What is it I said that the behaviors are, you know, so important to this business to build a really good culture? And I think that's the thing that I wish I, I wish I did sooner. Right, right. Okay, okay. Um, your next sort of big step, I suppose, is moving from Sheffield to, to opening a London office, wasn't it? Was that was that the next sort of step? In the, before we get onto that, um, I want to tell all our viewers and listeners all about the Leeds Business Podcast Fair Deal. The Leeds Business Podcast Fair Deal has two sides to it. My side of it, every week I bring you fantastic, inspirational and motivational, amazing business owners like Carrie, totally for free. Your side of the deal listeners and viewers has two parts to it. Number one, I want you to post a review at uh, Apple Podcasts on the app or at podchaser.com or give us a thumbs up at Spotify. Or if you're watching on YouTube, uh, give this episode a thumbs up and a review. Wave to everybody who's watching on YouTube, Carrie. There you go, Carrie's waving. The second part of your side of the fair deal is you need to recommend this podcast to one other people that you feel will get a benefit from it. So that's the Leeds Business Podcast Fair Deal. Fair Deal for Carrie? Fair Deal. Fair Deal. Right. Okay. So we've had this fast growth. We're in Sheffield. We then go to the big city, London. Talk us through Talk us through that because that's obviously a completely different skill set to do that. Yeah, it really is. Um, I think at first having an office in Sheffield. So by the way, the reason we started in Sheffield was because we couldn't open in Leeds. I had a contract that stated I weren't allowed to open office within 20 mile radius, radius of, of Branded 3. So we basically got a map and drew a circle and said, right, <laughs> 20 mile outside of this, where can we go? And we chose Sheffield because it had two universities kicking out talent and there was not really any good agencies there competing. So we saw that as a, you know, again, a blue ocean. We could get talent, um, cheap, um, you know, rent and things like that. So, and it was the pandemic. Like, it didn't really matter where you were at that time. However, I think when we were scaling our brand, we needed a lot more brand presence in the big city in London. Um, what we was winning, we was winning a lot of financial clients in London, a lot of big fashion brands and beauty brands and things like that. And essentially we needed people on the ground there. Obviously during the pandemic, people was kind of working from home and things like that. But I do think from a brand point of view, just being in London elevated us. It made us seem less local, I guess, um, as an agency and really showed that we're serious about our growth. We did that within six months of launching the whole business. So within six months, we had a London office. And then six months after that, we had a Manchester office. Some people might call me crazy because why do you need three offices in UK? UK is a tiny, tiny island. Um, but I do think during the pandemic, there was obviously this big impact on, you know, how do we build community and how do we keep culture alive when it comes to kind of staff and workforces? You know, the average age of Rise of Seven at the time was about 23. We were very young, like very, very young workforce. And a lot of these people was coming out of universities, wanting to kind of sit with their friends and learn and grow in their career. Um, so we had to still have a space. So we basically had mini spaces in Sheffield, London and, and Manchester. But what that allowed us to do is capture the very best talent. You remember, I, I kind of started this business getting grad graduate graduates from university. But because I had to scale this a lot more kind of um, you know, serious, I needed to look at people with already existing skill sets and experience. So expanding to London and Manchester allowed me to grab the very best from those cities. 
Right, right. And, and how did how did you cope with managing sort of three locations like that? Um, I think fine. I think it became costly, but I was okay investing in. I was okay investing in office space. Um, I don't think, to be honest, we invested in co-working spaces to start with, um, and that was, you know, it was fairly cheap. Um, but I think the the thing we did really well is we had a leader in each office. So I had a director of some sort in every office. There was one in Sheffield, there was one in London, one in Manchester. Um, and they was responsible for, you know, leading the vision, getting people excited, going on new business, um, and essentially setting what good looks like at Rise where it comes to client work as well as culture and staff. Um, so I do think having that senior head in each location was the, the best thing to do. Um, and now we've got a New York office and we've done the same there. So we now have a senior person over in New York. I do think that a lot of people, what you know, the hardest thing is replicating culture when you open a new office. So I think where, when you move people around, so a lot of our staff have moved. So, you know, they started in Sheffield, they're now heading up London or the London head up person that's now in New York. So we've allowed people to move around and, you know, experience new cities and things like that. But it's good because they've taken what they know about Rise in each office and applied it to a new one. Fantastic, fantastic. And how, I mean, obviously, if, you've, if you're taking on sort of fairly senior staff to head up these offices, one assumes they're a lot older than you. They've got a lot more experience than you. How 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 does that dynamic work? <laughs> it's an interesting one. Um, I will admit something, and I think a lot of people on this podcast will maybe identify, um, or even you know, if they're at the early stages of the, their business, they'll 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 see it coming. Um, the first two years of running Rise at Seven, I think I was very ego driven. Um, I can only admit that now. I wouldn't have admitted it then, um, but I was very much about, um, I thought I was the best at what I could do. I, you know, saw the success of the way I ran campaigns, the, the way I ran the business, and I clearly I'm good at what I do, it works. But then when you meet people that are better than you, sometimes that can be a threat, or you absolutely jump onto it and go, how can I work with this person? And I think for a long time I got, you know, there was a little bit of threat sometimes when I met people, I was like, oh, they're better at me than that. But what I quite realized is, well, if I go and put myself in a position of, well, I'm great at this thing, leaving this 90% of stuff, well, who could I find that's better than me at all these different things? So I think there's a lot of self-reflection you have to do to basically go and hire people better than you. And you basically go, right, well, what is it I'm great at? I'm gonna go do that and write a list of everything that you're not great at and go and hire people better than you at doing those things. So like, I have a full team with me now. Like I have an FD, I have a um, chief commercial officer. Like I have these like senior C-suite that are running the business for me now. And that's because I dropped the ego, realized what is it I'm great at, and then hired people way better at me than me at doing those things. Um, so yeah, I think that's uh, that's been a big success. Okay. And I think, you know, you said this before, one of one of the, the, the key people who did that was, was Stephen Kenwright. And the two of you worked together. Just talk us through how that relationship, I was, I was going to say works, but I know it's worked past so just just talk us through that but don't go too far into it because we're going to talk about post Kenwright in episode two so just tell us how tell us how that that sort of yin and yang fitted together between the two of you me and him are very interesting because we were completely the opposite people 
Like if you saw us in the street, we don't have the same energy. We, our like knowledge is completely the opposite. Our personality traits are completely the opposite, but that made it work really well. It was very clear that I was a front facing marketing person. So I looked, you know, I was market facing, I looked at the product, I looked after creative, I looked after marketing, et cetera, and lead gen. He was very technical. So he looked after the technical disciplines in the business, but as well as he was an integrator. So operations, finance, process, et cetera. So it was the perfect mix between myself and him of, I looked after the market, he looked internal. And that's the best dream. That's what everybody wants. I think a lot of co-founders when they don't work out is because they both want to be market facing or they both want to be the integrator. Whereas me and him were very clear. These, these are our roles and this is what we're great at. I do, however, think um, that lived quite short. I think there was an element of, um, I think there was an element of my vision and dreams for the business become a lot more different to his, where I think I saw the opportunity of where the market was going and then therefore, and he necessarily didn't, he was a lot more internal. So he had opinions of what we needed to do to fix internal problems, whereas I was looking at the market. And I think progressively what happened is, you know, our visions for the business kind of, you know, um, went uh, different ways. Um, so that was a big element of that. And I, I remember, I remember being on a podcast actually, Phil, and someone saying like how, I think there's a really high percentage of co-founders, it doesn't work out. It's quite common for co-founders to go for a management buyout. And I remember sat on that call thinking, oh my God, I'm the lucky one. I'm the one that has, you know, we still get along. We still have the same vision, the same blah, blah. And it's not that we didn't ever get along because we did. Um, it just felt as if we both then was on different paths. It was like we was building different businesses. Um, so we did go for a management buyout where Stephen exited the business in November last year. I'll stop you there. This is going to be, I'm going to have to play like the EastEnders tune now. <laughs> we'll hear about that in next week's episode. <laughs> Every week we ask our guest to give us a how-to. Oh, So, Carrie, what are you going to teach us about today? Hmm. How to build a personal brand for building and scaling your own business. Okay, take it away. So I think step one, when it comes to building a personal brand, you have to identify what are the three things that you are expert in or passionate about. Because I think often people talk about anything, everything. They see trending topics on LinkedIn or, or Twitter and they jump on it thinking, oh, that's gonna get me engagement, etc." That's not personal brand. Personal brand has to be personal to you. So what is it you have an expertise in and a personal interest in, and you need to hone down on those three things. And usually the way I structure it is, the first one has to be wide market. How can you talk to say five people at once? Because this topic, one topic, you know, is something that five people would be interested in. Then you go smaller. So the second topic would be a little bit more niche and then the third topic really niche. So that's kind of like the step one in terms of how to start, what type of content to be putting out there. Step two, I'd be choosing platforms. So what platforms is your audience engaging on? You don't really want to be, you know, speaking on the wrong platforms if people aren't there. That's not where your customers or your, you know, listeners or anything like that would be on. So um, I actually use a tool called Glimpse. Glimpse, you can type in the, it's a free tool, by the way. You can type in certain keywords. So you can type in those three, key, you know, mention, uh, 
themes that I just talked about and you, and essentially it tells you what social platforms are people spend their most time engaging with that. So it may be LinkedIn or Twitter or TikTok, etc. Like if you have a look at my personal brand, I only really use LinkedIn and, and Twitter. Like my Instagram is full of holiday pictures at Bali and on the beach. You won't get, you know, a personal brand and thought leadership on there because I know that's not where my customers are. That's not where my audience are spending their time. Um, and then thirdly, it's just about consistency. I think so many people invest in their personal brand and they just stop. And I think you've got to be consistently posting at least three times a week and thinking about different um, content formats, but really sticking to the thing that makes you, you. And that's why it's called personal brand because it has to be all about you and your personality. Fantastic. And there's a brilliant, what's that take, that two minutes, a two minute guide onto how to build your personal brand. There'll be a link, there'll be a link to, to, to Glimpse in the show notes if anybody wants to use that. Um, just, on, just on that point you've just said, one of the things um, you do spend a lot of time on social media doing is, is like telling people how to do stuff. You know, look, this is like, like you talked about that presentation before. This is how we did it. Look, have a look under the bonnet. Yeah. Why did, why did you do that? Education is the best sales strategy. If you can teach people something new every single day, then they know you know what you're talking about. And often people go and try it. They take your, you know, your education, your guide, whatever it is you put on LinkedIn. And there is sometimes 20% of people that can't do it. And they're like, do you know what? I'd rather pay you to do that because you know you're, you're better than me at that. And that's what I'm targeting is that 20 to 10% really. Um, and I think that helps me scale my brand really easy in terms of rising seven. I'm getting right fit clients, um, but it makes sales really easy. Typical sales in agency are anywhere around three to six months. Like it, it takes a long time to convert a customer. My typical sales journey is around six weeks. And that's because people already know I'm an expert. I don't need to go through the sales pitch of showing I know what I'm talking about because they've already seen it. Um, so yeah, I think there's two elements of it is attracting clients. People know I'm, I know what I'm talking about, but also making things a lot faster to convert in customers. Um, so yeah, I, do, I truly believe education is the best sales strategy in any market, whether you're B2B, B2C, um, you know, I'm in a B2B space, but I always say that to my customers, educate, 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 and you'll win. Fantastic. Great point. Great point. Um, so we also always ask our guests to give us a, a shout out for another Leeds business. So Carrie, who are you going to give a shout out to? So I'm actually going to shout out to the amazing Mother Nutter. I was getting up on my phone because I wanted to make sure I get it right. So Mother Nutter is a peanut butter that is actually based out of Leeds. Um, it's one of my friends who started it. I believe they've actually done a partnership with Selfridges. So I think they're actually, you know, product is in Selfridges now. Um, but it's a really kind of like homemade, um, amazing kind of product from this guy called Thierry. So he was my head of data at Rise at Seven. And he went and started this up um, inspired by his own mum, which is why it's called Mother, Mother Nutter. Um, so yeah, so that's a shout out because it's a Leeds based business and he's doing really well. Fantastic. Never heard of them. Again, there'll be links in the show notes to, to them. So thanks for that. So we're going to end it there. Me and Carrie are going to get changed and look like we're doing this again next week. And we're going to do part two. We'll appear next week, but we're going to go record it now. So don't go, well, don't, don't go, don't sit around for a week, but 
We'll see you in a week's time. Do you want me to go change my top? (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found it interesting, inspiring and of use. To make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes, please subscribe to the show. Go on, do it now. Do it now before you go off and do something else. Thank you. Much appreciated. Oh, and don't forget our fair deal. See you next week.